Hello and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Failing U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Mohit Malik, U.S. Projects Assistant at the Failing U.S. Center. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, I spoke to Joshua Kralancic, Senior Fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. Joshua Kralancic joined us in March 2023 to discuss his new book, Beijing's Global Media Offensive, China's Uneven Campaign to Influence Asia and the World. For our first question, I would like to focus on your new book titled Beijing's Global Media Offensive, China's Uneven Campaign to Influence Asia and the World. Could you please give our listeners a summary of the book's main theme and the argument that you make? The book is basically more broadly looks at China's growing efforts to influence other countries' domestic politics and societies which until very recently, they had not done in most places in the world other than their own near neighborhood, Southeast Asia, Taiwan, maybe a little bit in South Korea, etc. So it looks at how they have, under Xi Jinping, broadly expanded their influence efforts inside other countries' politics and societies. And it looks at several different ways that they've done so. One is the expansion of the big state media, that is China Global Television Network, China Radio International, and Xinhua. Two is Beijing's increasing and almost 100% control of Chinese language publications, print, radio, television, in virtually every country in the world where there is a sizable population of people who get their news first from Chinese language publications. So that includes the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, as well as countries in Southeast Asia, where there are very large numbers of Chinese first readers and speakers like Malaysia, Singapore, et cetera. In fact, there is virtually almost no, with a few exceptions, like in Taiwan, in Singapore, to some extent, and a few other very small publications, there is almost no independent Chinese language coverage of Beijing in the CCP left in almost any country. Third, I talk about China's growing use of disinformation on social media platforms to influence other countries. Fourth, I talk about their own social media platforms and the potential power of those, most notably WeChat, which is a massive super app used in China, but used also extensively by the diaspora community. And then obviously TikTok, which is a huge, it's going to be the most popular app in the world next year, is a huge issue that every liberal democracy, including the UK, the US, and Europe, Canada, Australia, virtually everyone, every liberal democracy is going to have to reckon with because right now, users' data on TikTok is is all, is much of which is moved through servers in China, which is, uh, I think, unacceptable to, clearly unacceptable to the Biden administration and is going to be unacceptable to most liberal democracies. And then finally, I talk about what I call old-fashioned influence, just because its stuff has been around longer. So that includes things like just straight up paying politicians and meddling in elections by paying politicians or using pressure on politicians to take pro-Beijing positions, 
that has been a factor in elections in Taiwan and Australia and Canada. And the old fashioned influence aspects also include increasing efforts to control universe discourse about China on university campuses, student groups, and other civil society, not just in Southeast Asia, but and in authoritarian states, but also in liberal democracies. And not to go on for too long, that's the overview. The second part I would just add that also very important. The subtitle is actually called China's Uneven Campaign to Influence Asia and the World. So the argument that I make, besides laying out all of these tools, which have become potentially dangerous, I argue that some of the tools, and we can go into that, have become quite effective in China getting its message across, you know, um, gaining greater sort of discourse power in the world, changing minds, possibly changing elections, but that a lot of the efforts have actually not been very successful. And we can go into those and why that is. But I just want to leave you with that, with a point on that, which is that despite staggering amounts spent on these influence efforts, China's public image in polling by Pew and other respected um, media organizations is horrible right now. It's not necessarily horrible in some developing countries in Africa, Latin America, and Southeast Asia, but even in some of those countries, it's much lower than it was. And even in places like Southeast Asia, where countries are inevitably wedded to China, like they can't, China's their biggest trading partner, biggest investor, they, they can't divorce themselves from China. There is a growing amount of fear as well as a response in which some of these countries, many of whom don't have great real love for the U.S., have moved in a strategic direction back towards the U.S. Most notably, the Philippines has signed a massive agreement allowing the U.S. extensive rights, basing, port rights, et cetera. But I'll stop there. I guess it makes sense to focus on that last point of success and failure when it comes to pumping such a large sum of money into this media project in order to gain influence. You know, I imagine that these parameters of success and failure are very important. When we begin to look at some of the determinants for success, does China look to triangulate its media influence with its large-scale foreign investment projects? You know, I'm thinking of whether that's the Belt and Road Initiative or some of its various projects across Africa, the Caribbean, and Latin America. Um, you know, could these forms of investment be used as a means to further its media influence in that region and be successful in that pursuit? You know, I recognize you said that the initial success is waning. No, well, the success has, has been weakest in liberal democracies as well as in some places that know China very well, better than perhaps Africa or Latin America, like South Korea, Japan, Southeast Asia, India, it's Taiwan, etc., but yes, I mean, if you talk about the state media, which is China Global Television, the big state media, China Global Television Network, China Radio International, and Xinhua, which is a newswire, they very much focus a lot of their, their coverage and reportage in Africa and Latin America um, on BRI successes and other sort of successes in building infrastructure and aid projects. Now, some of this stuff became problematic during COVID because 
during COVID, a lot of developing countries, a number of developing countries that had uh, BRI projects could no longer pay back some of the interest and were asking for forget loan forgiveness and haircuts from China. There's a very good study actually by Aid Data, which is an organization at William and Mary University in the United States, which is an incredible organization, which studies Chinese lending as well as Chinese soft power. And one of the interesting things they found in a comprehensive study was that China has a lot of BRI agreements that aren't negotiated in the standard way that would be negotiated by what's called the Paris Club of Donors, uh, primarily rich world donors, Japan, United States, UK, EU, et cetera. And a lot of China's agreements have side clauses where China gets paid back first before others and other problematic side clauses. But so some of this promotion of, you're right that the media, very, the state media very much ties into a lot of the things that China is doing, BRI aid infrastructure, as well as other things that they may be doing that are not necessarily like there's the state media promoted very heavily China's early efforts to provide a lot of COVID supplies and China made COVID vaccines to countries um, like Malaysia and others. Unfortunately, those vaccines weren't very effective, but there was certainly a lot of hype of it in the Chinese state media. So yes, there is a there is definitely a triangulation. It's just that um, in the last few years, as China has dealt with its own massive domestic problems and some of the BRI issues have become problematic. To, to its credit, China has adapted somewhat, given some loan forgiveness, given hair, haircuts, which is like basically like a, you know, like a financial term for just accepting losses, et cetera. But um, a lot of that sort of promotion calmed down because China was dealing with its own problems and BRI was becoming more controversial. But yes, to your main point, yes, they definitely use that to triangulate the things that they do that are perceived as good in other countries. If we were to just hone in on certain news networks like Xinhua, like CGTN, do you think we would find that in certain non-liberal democracies where perhaps it might be easier to exert Chinese influence, do you think in these countries they've begun to establish credibility in ways that are akin to other foreign news networks like Al Jazeera in liberal democracies, for instance? Absolutely, absolutely not, except for Xinhua. And in fact, I can back that up in, in my book. I have extensive Gallup polling that was commissioned by the U.S. government, but it's independent polling, which shows that CRI and CGTN have almost no audience, even in, in developing countries. It shows that, you know, the, the studies show in Africa and Latin America and a lot of other places, they really haven't gained an audience. But it's funny that you mentioned Al Jazeera. I think what China wanted with these networks was for them to be a kind of Chinese Al Jazeera. In other words, Al Jazeera is a network that is based in an authoritarian monarchy. Al Jazeera doesn't cover the Qatari royal family with any independence. They don't cover issues related to Qatar, like the World Cup with any independence. And they probably don't cover Qatar's disputes with some of its neighbors with independence. That said, 
in the rest of the world, in, in Southeast Asia, Latin America, the US, and most of the Middle East and Europe, Al Jazeera has tons of quality journalists and produces excellent reporting, you know, top level reporting. But the reason they can do that is because, except for rare occasions like the World Cup, most people don't really pay attention to Qatari domestic politics. And so the fact that they just don't simply care whether Al Jazeera doesn't cover Qatari's domestic politics. And so Al Jazeera, its journalists in other parts of the world are given essentially independence and they produce quality reporting. I think China wanted to have a Chinese version of that, but it just simply wasn't possible because for several reasons. One, China is not Qatar. So even if they wanted to model it on them, so many stories in the world have some relationship to China. You know, most people, you know, don't care about the Qatari royal family unless you're in the natural gas industry, just don't pay much attention to Qatar. And so it just wasn't possible, like almost not every story, but almost most economics, trade stories, US-China stories, China's relations with the Europe, military stories, et cetera, have something to do with China, climate change stories. And China's increasingly authoritarian government, which has become way more authoritarian under Xi Jinping, just couldn't accept that. They couldn't give journalists that freedom. And so what you wound up with was CGTN and CRI essentially, and sorry, I should have backed up and said, they hired a ton of quality foreign journalists seven or eight, nine years ago to work for CGTN and CRI. British journalists, American journalists, journalists all over Africa and Latin America and other places. They even went and hired journalists in Africa who had made their names by report, doing investigative reporting on Chinese corruption in Africa. So they were really seeking out independent voices, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't, the Al Jazeera model doesn't work. And as China became more authoritarian, these networks, and particularly in the zero COVID period where it became just like incredibly, the shift was already on, but just an incredible shift to one man authoritarianism. The networks just became so controlled that they became turgid and propagandistic in a way that they weren't a few years earlier and that they even weren't in like the nine in like the 2000s. Most of the foreign journalists quit. And so those networks don't really have much audience, even in developing countries, let alone developed countries like the UK has actually banned CGTN. Australia's main broadcaster has banned CGTN. In the United States, if you want to work for CGTN, you have to register as a foreign agent, which most journalists, most non-Chinese national journalists don't want to do. Xinhua, by con contrast, has been quite successful. And that is because Xinhua is a news wire, and they've signed content sharing agreements with outlets all over the world, all over the developing world, and even in some rich countries like Italy and Germany. So they provide their their stories, their newswire stories. And Xinhua is cheaper than Reuters or the AP or Bloomberg or AFP, et cetera. 
And those stories then get picked up by the local news outlets in Kenya or Thailand or Malaysia or whatever, translated into local languages. And often, if Xinhua is credited at all, it's at the bottom of the article, which most people don't look at, frankly, or they're not credited at all. So you have this, in fact, instance, for example, in Thailand, in which the best news organization in Thailand, the equivalent of the UK doesn't isn't really have this, but like in the United States, like the best news organization, the the behemoth is the New York Times, right? So the UK has a lot of national papers, so it's not the same, but in China, the in uh, Thailand, the Mati Chung group is considered sort of like the New York Times of Thailand. And they have started to use Xinhua copy in their various news publications. And so Xinhua is translated into local languages like Thai. And Thai readers, not really realizing this, are getting this wire copy, which is essentially Chinese propaganda. And that's only going to increase because journalism is not really a growth business. It's a business that's been in decline for a long time. And so more and more news outlets, particularly in developing countries, are going to seek Xinhua out because it's cheaper than the AP, it's cheaper than Bloomberg, it's cheaper than Reuters, et cetera. So Xinhua has been a massive success for China, whereas the other two state media really have not been. You know, now I'd like to turn to the United States for a little bit. And I guess just to begin, given its relevancy right now, do you have any thoughts on the Restrict Act that was unveiled by Senator Mark Warner and this attempt now, which is becoming very vocal and pronounced in the Senate, to give the Commerce Department authority to impose restrictions on different technologies that may pose a national security risk. Do you think this is something we might see more of in the United States as a way to deal with Chinese media influence? Yeah, I mean, TikTok is a major target. I mean, WeChat is a very valuable app to Chinese speakers and and in all over the world, you know, it's valuable and that they, they can be in contact with relatives in China. And WeChat has some problems too, like stories from Chinese state media that are false are circulated on WeChat. And so then they get sort of extra amplification. But I don't think the Biden administration and the Sunak administration or the European Commission or whoever is really focused on WeChat. It's not it's limited to the ethnic Chinese community, and I, I don't think they plan to crack down hard on it. Trump wanted to crack down on it, but he he didn't. He ultimately did not. Yes, I think that um, this is a sign of increasing hawkishness in the U.S. towards China. That's obvious. It's the last but really bipartisan issue left in the U.S. Frankly, there's almost nothing left that Democrats and Republicans agree on, and that's kind of an important point because. It allows them, particularly in the Senate, but even in the House, to say they're to claim they're working on something. I do think that it's not just the U.S. I think every liberal democracy is going to have, including the U.K., which is pretty hawkish on China these days itself, and Australia, which is also pretty hawkish. But everyone, even countries that are less hawkish, like New Zealand or Germany, although Germany is itself is becoming more hawkish and moving away from a more a line of more engagement with China, um, are going to have to deal with. I mean, I just don't think 
with TikTok that it's possible. I don't think it's acceptable for users' data to be stored in China. So there are several possible resolutions. I don't think the Biden administration wants to ban TikTok, which is the direction that Warner and his, I can't remember his Republican co-sponsor, but he has a Republican co-sponsor kind of want to go in. I think ideally that's what they would like. And India has banned TikTok. They're the only democracy. India, if, uh, I mean, if you consider India still the, a full democracy, but at least a flawed democracy. As far as I know, they're the only democracy that's outright banned TikTok. I think, you know, I don't think Joe Biden going into a presidential election, right? He's like, I, I don't remember, you know, 79, maybe. I don't think he wants to be the guy who takes TikTok away from Americans. The Democratic Party is heavily, heavily, heavily responsible in all elections, but including presidential elections on several constituencies. And one of those most important constituencies is people from ages 18 to 35. That's a critical, critical, critical constituency and one that played a huge role in the 2022 midterms. Joe Biden doesn't want to be the old guy who took TikTok from every 18 to 35 year old in the United States. I'm not saying that it would cost him the election, but like that, that's just not something he wants to announce. So I think they're going to come up with some compromise solution in which TikTok, TikTok's um, CEO is actually testifying in Congress pretty soon, although he is really a front for the, for the parent company, which is ByteDance which the Chinese government actually has a seat on the board of, and you have to assume that that seat is the most powerful seat. Um, I think they want to come up with some solution in which ByteDance agrees to keep U.S. TikTok users' data on servers created in the U.S. The problem with that solution is, while the U.S. is the most still the most powerful country in the world, maybe they'll agree to that, then every other country, every other democracy is going to, everyone's going to be asking them for the same thing. Prime Minister Sunak is going to ask for the same thing, you know. Um, the European Commission is going to ask for the same thing. Justin Trudeau is going to ask for the same thing. I don't really know how they negotiate that, but I think that ultimately that's where the Biden administration is going to wind up on. In terms of the CHIPS Act and all, all the other increasingly harsh, tough efforts on China, you know, I think I'm of two minds. I mean, I think China has become increasingly assertive around Taiwan and in the South China Sea and on the border with India and in general with their diplomacy. They also have become harder to deal with in terms of resolving issues because unlike in the Cold War, where despite all the issues of the Cold War, most of the Cold War, the United States and Russia had, the United States and Soviet Union had a direct line. They could talk to each other to, to tamp down potential disasters. And China and the, and the United States don't have that. So a, a potential disaster is, you know, looming at any moment. I think it's a very tough measure. At the same time, I think it's supported by a lot of other the, the the shift is coming. I mean, it's even coming in places like Germany, which is whose trade relationship with China is incredibly close. Germany has with its in you know incredible 
machine tool and machine industry has basically helped build China, help China build a lot of its companies. But even there, I think it's shifting. And just to add to that, China hugely miscalculated by um, supporting Vladimir Putin in the Ukraine war. That First of all, that cost, they were actually had very good relationships with most countries in Central and Eastern Europe, as well as a good relationship with Germany and many of the Baltic states that immediately, and Sweden and, and, uh, and Scandinavia, that immediately blew that all up. And they probably could have come to some more nuanced response, but it seems like they're just going to go all in. And I don't understand that other than that they just feel like they don't support Putin, then it somehow weakens them in some way. But I mean, that has really, really, really badly hurt their image among a lot of liberal democracies. And so Biden is actually enjoying support for and the US for some of these very hawkish measures. He's going to get Japan. They're they're, you know, hemming and hawing, but he's going to get the other major chip producers, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and the Netherlands, which produces the machine that produces all these chips, which is crazy. Like one company in the Netherlands produces, one single company produces the machines that make all the chips and the powerful chips in the world. That's insane. But he's going to get them to agree to not provide China with chips. I, I predict that. Um, but yeah, it's a very dangerous situation right now. And I don't really see where this goes. It seems to go more downhill. I, I don't know. All right. Well, I am aware that you know time is running out, so I'll just ask one final question on that last point and try, and I suppose, map out the future. Do you think, given Xi Jinping's ambitions, that China will continue this effort to expand its media into other countries? And in particular, do you think it will try to give up its efforts to perhaps gain a foothold in the United States or other liberal democracies? And instead, focus on uh, gaining that influence in other countries, perhaps where it might be easier to solidify its own media presence. Well, I think their media, when you say media influence, that includes media, greater use of disinformation, their social media platforms, as well as the old fashioned influence. I mean, I can't read Xi Jinping's mind, but no, I don't think they're going to give that up at all. I mean, I think with the more authoritarian states where China is already built very close relations, those are already there, you know, like, and they have a very good relationship with Ethiopia and uh, Egypt and uh, Myanmar, which, which is not exactly, you know, and, and Laos, and, um, you know, we could go uh, Pakistan, which isn't an authoritarian state, but it's, you know, somewhere in between and, and a number of other, you know, and the UAE and, uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, Russia. And so those relationships are already fairly, Zimbabwe, they're already fairly solidified. So I feel like, despite what I said about the state media not being that popular, China in general is fairly popular in some of those places. And in addition, they have expanded the, and brought their internet model to a lot of those authoritarian states, a model of heavily closed and filtered internet. 
I think from the Chinese leadership's point of view, those are kind of taken as a given that they've already have those. So no, I expect them to continue to ramp up and to adapt. Um, China is adaptable despite being an authoritarian state and come up with new and better ways to use their state media, their disinformation on major social media platforms, which are now badly lacking in content moderation, Twitter, Facebook, and others. YouTube have fired tons of people involved in content moderation. So that's made it easier for state actors like China and Russia to spread disinformation, to be involved in political influence in liberal democracies, eventually probably try to be more directly involved in, in elections. So no, I don't, I don't expect them to stop that. I expect them to, to ramp that up. And in the same way that, you know, great powers in the, in the past, like the United States and, and today, you know, the United States is not not without sin. I mean, the United States used a massive program to spy on many of its allies, including Angela Merkel's own private cell phone and stuff. So uh, um, China is the second most powerful state in the world. And the United States, Britain, France, other leading democracies have their own quote unquote state media aid media, like United States have Voice of America, Radio Free Asia, France has AFP, Britain has the BBC, right? But I'm surprised actually you didn't ask me though this, but China will say, well, everyone else has their state media, so why can't we? And it's important to make the point that all of those other state media enjoy complete editorial independence and in fact often right incredibly they produce independent often damning reporting about their own countries not because they're seeking to but because they're just reporting the news uh, uh the bbc itself and i'm not defending the actions of the journalist of how he got the uh story but the bbc produced a story in which the princess of wales devastated the entire royal family that's a draft you wouldn't see that on DGTM. But yeah, no, I think China's going to ramp up their efforts among big liberal democracies. We need to stop now. But if you look at my book, I talk about various ways in which we can, uh, liberal democracies can prepare for that and learn how to combat it and things like that. Joshua Kurlancic is the Senior Fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thank you to Joshua Kralancic for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson, Moed Malik, and Anderson Tan. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter.lse.ac.uk or send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And if you'd like, tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the failing U.S. Center or London School of Economics. Thank you for listening. <laughs>